Father God, we we thank you that you are an unchanging God and that there is no other like Jesus Christ through whom we can be saved. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that you've shown us through his sacrifice on the cross. God, we thank you for your word, Father, that teaches us, that challenges us. And Father, we pray this morning that you would work in our hearts as we come to your word, God, that you would help us to see, Father, that you would open our eyes that you would help us to hear, that you would open our ears, Father. That we would walk out changed because of of having been in your presence. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. How's everybody doing this morning? All right, good. We're looking for chairs in the back. They're all the hardest possible place you can get them, right down this middle row. <laughs> or up front, it's real easy to get to. All right, well, it's springtime, and or it's starting to be springtime, and usually around this time, I start seeing your, he- your eyelids get a little heavy, because that tells me you had a lot of fun on the weekends. That's not going to happen in here. We're going to keep you awake. Isn't that right, Joe? All right, well... We're uh, working through the discourses in Matthew. There's five discourses, five sermons, if you will, where Jesus sat down and talked to his disciples to help them understand things. I was thinking in preparation for this, I was thinking way back in September of 2004. You know what you were doing in September of 2004? No, I do. I was meeting with four other families in our living room for the first time, scared to death, excited, thinking we are about to embark on a journey of planting a new church. And so what do you think the first thing we did? What do you think it was? I mean, do you think the first thing we did was all five families head out and start telling everybody about the church that we're planning, come and come see us and come join us? Uh, if we did do that, then you would have had disaster. We would have had five different churches being formed, different people coming to different churches that they had in their mind, because the first thing we had to do was to get our act together, get on the same page about the who, what, when, where, and why of the church. What kind of church are we trying to start? Where are we going to start it? How are we going to go about doing that? What is it specifically that this church is going to uh, be unique for? And so the first thing we did was we spent a lot of time praying, a lot of time reading the Word of God, studying what God's, what God's Word teaches that, that the church should be and do, and the leader, what's expected of the leaders, what's expected of the members. And so we tried our best to get on the same page before we headed out. And so that's, that's what we see Jesus doing with his disciples as we come to this third discourse. In our case, we decided that there's a lot of great ways to do church. There's no right or wrong as long as you're faithful to the scriptures, but we can flesh that out different ways. But for us, we wanted to be all about meaningful relationships. We wanted a church to not be a place where you just kind of zip in and zip out and put on what's come to be known as the friendly foyer face. We want you to have a place where you know people, you have meaningful relationships, and that relationship is to help you live the Christian life, help you be obedient, help you understand the scriptures and, and be faithful to the Lord. And so that was important to us to have small groups. And, and, and so 
meaningful membership was part of our, our, our mantra, if you will. And so the next stage for us was instead of doing what a lot of churches were doing back then and still do, they would have a big preview service. They would say, let's have a great band and, and have the speaker and put the flyers out, put the word out and advertise and try to have hundreds of hundreds of people come to that first service. And then let's try to hold on to some of them. And that'll be the beginning of our church. Instead of doing it that way, we took a very slow, steady process. One small group became two, and two became three, and three became four. And we never had the big, massive uh, show, if you will, to try to draw people in. We just said, let's, let's have meaningful membership, and let's be faithful. And as we are faithful to do what the scriptures tell us, we trust the Lord will grow us. And, and we now have 19 community groups, praise the Lord. And so the, the Lord has been moving us, but it all started with getting our act together, knowing what we were doing, knowing where we're going, knowing what we're not doing and what we're not. And that's what we see Jesus doing in this discourse, which is the third discourse. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount, where he told them to be my disciples. What it really means is to have the righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. It's not external righteousness. It's internal righteousness that you receive by faith. Then when you have that, you have the new heart of faith, your external behavior starts to change and does come become more righteous. And then he said, now, second discourse, all of you who are following me, he says, you need to know I've been sent to save the world. And if you're going to be my disciple following me, guess what? You have been sent as well. And so we were challenged to understand that every follower of Christ is a missionary, not just the Lewises in Africa, but all of us are on mission. And then he prepared us. Expect persecution. Don't fear man, fear God. Be obedient. God has your back. And then he comes to this third discourse, and it's called the parabolic discourse. Why is it called the parabolic discourse? I'll give you one guess. Hey, y'all are brilliant. There's because the sermon is full of parables. So in this third sermon, Jesus is telling several parables. We're going to look at three of them in the next few weeks. And he says in every one of them, this is the kingdom of heaven. And so he's giving his disciples, he's gathered them together. He's, he's got them together and he's saying, here's what my kingdom is like. And he's telling parables to help explain the kingdom. So let's begin just, I, I, I struggled with this text all week. I did not have a whole lot of relaxation yesterday. My family was out of town. I thought, what am I gonna do with all this free time? Well, I never got peace with the sermon. So I grinded the sermon all weekend. That is the nature of a parable. It is, you're gonna see in, in the very essence of the parable that that is what it does to us. First, let's see the context of the parable. Let me ask the Lord to help us. Lord, please help us this morning. Help us to understand this parable. Help us to understand your teaching. Give us ears to hear what you would have us hear. Give us eyes of faith to see what you're wanting us to see. Give us hearts to understand your message. I pray that your spirit will move powerfully in our midst. And those who need to trust Christ for the first time will. And that those who need to grow in their faith will do that as well. All this by your spirit's empowerment. Would you do that for us in the name of Jesus? Amen. All right. Let's look at the context of the parable, verses 1 through 3. Here's the context of the parable. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, 
a sower went out to sow. So notice what he says in verse 1, that same day. When you're reading that, if you just jump into the text and you say, that same day, you go, okay, what day is he talking about? What day? Well, that means you've got to go back and read and get the context of this passage. See, what we've been doing, it's a little challenging. In the book of Matthew, instead of studying the whole book of Matthew, we've lifted out these five sermons out of the book of Matthew. But we must always, when we study them, put them back in the, in the book of Matthew so that we rightly interpret them. Because there's the, the author, the God-inspired author of the book of Matthew, has a purpose for writing his gospel. And the format of this gospel is he has some narration about some events that happen, and then there's a sermon of Jesus. Some narration, and then a sermon of Jesus. Narration, and the sermon of Jesus. And so he's got these five sermons that we're studying, but there's things that are happening in the narrative that he wants us to know about. So when he comes to this third sermon, he says, Now on that same day, Jesus told this parable. We need to get the context and say, what, what was going on on that same day? Or maybe a better way to say that is, what went on in verses 11 and 12? Because the, the last sermon we studied ended in verse 10, in chapter 10, and now we're in chapter 13. Well, what happened in chapters 11 and 12? And it wasn't until I did this that finally I go, oh, okay, now I feel at peace with what, we're trying, what, what God is trying to teach us in this passage. So on the same day is referring to what happened in chapters 11 and 12. What in the world happened in chapters 11 and 12? Well, as it turns out, there was a massive transitioning taking place. In chapters 11 and 12, we see in the gospel, Jesus is being rejected by his own people. The rejection by the Jewish leaders becomes final, and they start to plot to kill Jesus. Now, if you think about it, this, this is shocking information because this is God's own people. When you're talking about the kingdom of God talked about in the Old Testament, you're thinking Jewish kingdom, Jewish people, the Jews receiving their king that they thought would be from the line of David because that's what the Old Testament scripture said, that they thought he would be this royal ruler, born of a Jew, born of the, the lineage of Abraham. And so now this one arrives and they're rejecting him. In fact, they're plotting to kill him. They say he's blasphemous. They say he's a hypocrite. He's a heretic. Don't follow him. And that's what's happening in, in chapter 11 and 12, is there's a transition from what we see was the Jews receiving the Messiah to what, by verse 16, on the confession of Peter, that you are the Christ, the rock, the son of God. He says, that's what my church will be built on. So it's the beginning of this transition from the Jews to the Gentiles, from this Old Testament idea of a kingdom to what we now know as the church. All of that began to be crystal clear in chapter 11 and 12 as they rejected Jesus. But let's look at one verse in particular. At the end of chapter 12, we see that this is a very interesting conversation that right before the parable is told. In 1246, it says, While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to Jesus. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, Jesus said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, referring to the disciples. 
Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You remember what we saw in the last sermon, what Jesus said about mothers and fathers? He says, my identity divides even families. You must choose Christ even over mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. Households will be divided over me. It will be crystal clear. You're either with Jesus or not. Even Jesus himself had to make that choice. And so what we see is the context is this. As we look at these parables of the kingdom that reveal the nature of the kingdom, it's right on the heels of Matthew telling us Jesus on the same day, right before he told these parables, said, you are not a part of my family just by birth. You must choose me. You must have faith in me, Jesus says. Even my own family will not be a part of the kingdom if they do not follow Jesus, is what he's saying. And then he says, on the very same day, Jesus tells this parable. So let's look at verses 4 through 9 in the context of the Jews rejecting Jesus as king of the kingdom and Jesus saying even to his own Jewish family, it's not about being Jewish. It's not about your birthright. He says this parable, verse 4, And he sowed, so the sower went out sowing seed, and he sowed, and some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now just stop for a minute. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Keep it to yourself. Don't answer out loud. Where are you mentally right now? When you hear this parable, where are you? What's your state of mind? There's, there's basically two responses. Some in here are saying, really? Parables? Really? What time is it? Really? How long is this going to take? Preacher, could you just get to the point? How long is this chapter? Thir- 23 verses? Come on. What time is it? Where are we going to have lunch? Let me just get through this thing and get out of here. Why are you being so complicated? Why does it have, why speak in riddles? Others in here hear the parable and are going, wait, what now? Okay, so what does that mean? I wonder, wonder why, why are some fruitful? Wait, what is the hard soil? What's the rocky soil? What does all this mean? I want to know more about it. And, th- and that's the very point. We're going to see that's the very point. So let me ask you, be honest with yourself, be honest with God. When you hear a parable, when you just heard us read the scripture, as we are about to investigate the word of God, what is your heart saying to you? Are you bored? Or are you intrigued? Are you just trying to get out of here? Or are you very curious to know what God has to say to you today. Hold on to that answer. 
So let's just make a few quick observations about the telling of the parable. We're not going to look at the meaning of it because that's the last thing he's going to do. But just, let's just make some observations about the parable. This parable is called the parable of the, of the sower. That's a terrible name for it. That's not what it's about. So I'll just tell you up front. It's not about the sower. How much detail is given about the sower? Very little. All it says is the sower's cast in seed. That's it. It's not about the sower. It's also not called the parable of the seed. It's not about the seed. It doesn't say, hey, this seed was wheat and this was barley and, and this wheat was bad. It, was, it sat in the grain too long. It ruined and spoiled. And, and this, wheat, this seed was this. It doesn't talk about the seed. It just says the seed went out and it talks about where it landed. What is this parable all about? It's all about the soil. It should be called the parable of the soil. That's just some, somebody called it the parable of the sower and it stuck. But let's rename it. It's the parable of the soils. And there's four soils. There's the hard soil on the path. And what happened to the seed that landed on the hard soil? Birds ate it. Then there's the rocky soil. Most likely in in that context, there was limestone just right up underneath the top soil that was sitting there. And so it was rocky soil, shallow soil. What does it say about it? Showed some initial growth, but then the sun scorched it away. And then there's the soil where the seed landed. It was among thorns. And what happened to that? It was choked out. And then finally, the good soil. But what does it say about the good soil? It produced three levels of harvest, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. So now we we have the basic idea. This is what he said. This is not what it means. This is just what he said. There's, There's a sower casting seed, and the seed's landing in different soils. A hard soil, which is the path. The bird comes and eats it up real quick. Another soil that had a little little rocky soil, and so it it sprung up quickly, but then the sun scorched it away, and then we see there's the soil that was in weeds, and the weeds grow and choke it out, but then there was the good soil, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Where is your heart right now? This, This text belabors the point. It draws it out. You keep thinking, just tell me what it means. Oh, before we tell you what it means, we gotta get to the question, we got to look at verses 10 through 17, the reason for the parable. Notice what he says in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Isn't, how many times have you read a parable and wanted to ask Jesus that exact same thing? You've got the crowds. This is it, man. It's time to close the deal. You don't want to speak in parables. You just want to say, I'm the savior of the world. Believe in me. Why would you make it so complicated? What they're saying, it it could literally be translated. They come to him and say, why are you speaking in code? Why are you speaking in riddles? Why are you speaking in parables? But before we go any further, let's stop and think. How, How were the disciples asking Jesus this? I thought he was in a boat and all the crowds were on the beach. Where were the disciples? They were in the boat with them. And so physically, we already start to see there's a distinction between the crowds and these disciples. And these disciples are physically in a privileged position. They're in the boat as Jesus is speaking, which was probably an amphitheater type situation. The crowds were pressing on him. So he's like, 
Let's get in the boat. He pulls out off the beach and he starts to speak to them and he speaks parables. There was a sower who was casting seed and he tells the parable and the disciples are in the boat and so they scoot up over on the seat next to Jesus and go, why are you speaking in code, dude? Why are you speaking in riddles? Why are you speaking in parables? And so what we first must notice is the disciples who have trusted in Jesus, the disciples who have gotten into the boat with Jesus are in a privileged position as contrasted with the crowds. And why is it privileged? Because they get to have that private explanation of the meaning. They get to have Jesus explain. They get to have this relationship with Jesus and say, open this up to us, Jesus. Tell me, what does this mean? But before they even get to that point, they're saying, why are you speaking that way? And at this point, when I'm studying the text, I'm going, yeah, why are you speaking this way? So what is his answer? Verse 11, he answered them. To you, disciples in the boat, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. And at that point, I'm going, oh, that satisfies. No, I'm going, what? Well, then what are you even doing? So what is he saying here? Jesus is making the distinction between the disciples who believe in him and the crowd. Now, the crowd, let's be careful, Hill. not everyone in the crowd is, is a hardened heart unbeliever. But for the purposes of what we're seeing is Jesus is saying there's, there's two people, those who have decided to follow me and those who have not, those who have, for the most part, rejected me, those who have decided to, 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 to not follow me, not get in the boat with me. And Jesus is saying, as he makes that distinction, that the, those who have decided to follow him have a privileged position. They get to know the secrets of the kingdom. He goes on in verse 12, and he says a proverb. This is a, Hebrew, this is a, a, a proverb that is, that is translated for us. It doesn't sound proverbial, but it is. It says, for, those, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's similar to our own way of saying, the rich get richer. But in this case, he's talking about understanding What he's saying is those who have the understanding of faith, those who have embraced Jesus, those who have gotten in the boat with Christ, those who say, you are the Messiah, I believe in you, I trust you, you are the way, the truth, and the life, that I am not counting on my own religion to be made right with God. I am putting my whole faith in God's promise that he'll give me credit for Jesus's righteousness, that he took my death on the cross. He took my penalty that I deserved for my very real sin, and he paid the price as my substitute. He is my way into the kingdom that I trust Jesus. He says, to those who have that faith and that understanding, much more is given. But to those who reject him, you don't get to know the secrets of the kingdom. In verse 13, he goes on to address the stubborn hearts of the unbelievers that are making up the crowd for the most part. He says in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. 
I speak in parables because they do not see. They, they, because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, he says, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And then he quotes the prophecy of Isaiah that says about those Jews, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed. And lest, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Have you checked out? Are you done with this long, drawn-out parable? Are you just here because your parents are making you to be here? Are you here just to make your spouse happy? She wants us and the kids in church. But my word, how long are they going to be talking? Where are we eating lunch? Can he put a little interesting story in there? Tell us a joke, something. Jesus says the reason he spoke in parables to the crowd, which was primarily made up of Jews who had rejected Jesus, is because he knew they had stubborn, unbelieving hearts, just like Isaiah said they would. And what does a stubborn, unbelieving heart do with a parable? Nothing. Three times in this passage, he refers to understanding. He's not talking about intelligence. You can tell because he's using metaphors. He talks about ears that don't hear and eyes that don't see. He's not talking to a group of people who have no ears or they're all deaf and blind. He's saying your ears don't hear and your eyes don't see and your hearts don't understand. The crowd who rejected Jesus has forfeited understanding the things of God. They're spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, and have no spiritual understanding. So why did Jesus speak in parables? So here's the basic reason. Jesus speaks in parables because parables force us to choose. Will I go and ask? Will I seek understanding? Will I, do I care? to do the work, to understand? Do I care to seek the truth? Do I care to ask the one who told the parable? Do I believe there is really any value in the parable? Do I believe there is, it is helpful to put forth the effort to understand what Jesus is saying? If you're here today just to please someone in your family or to have a business reputation, you have no appetite for the word of God. And Jesus says, I speak in parable because I want to feed those who want to know. But to those who have no heart to hear, no ears to hear, no eyes to see, you get nothing out of this. Amen. Jesus is the key. 
what you do with Jesus in this life has eternal implications. What you do with Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, when you open the scriptures, the spirit of God makes this come to life. And it addresses everything you're going through. And you're not even reading something about your job. You're just reading the gospels. You're reading the word of God. And the spirit of God explodes it with life and meaning. And it nourishes your soul. And to the one who has, gets more. And the one who wants more, finds more. And after day after day of putting in diligent effort to seek to understand the word of God and pray, God, give me revelation. Give me understanding. Help me understand what you mean. Help me understand how this applies. Let me, let me understand you. Let me know you. Let me know your purposes. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives to the one who has he will get more and more and more. But the one who has rejected Jesus opens this book and says, this is stupid. This dead book does nothing for me. What is your response to the word of God? It must start with faith in Christ or it's, it's ridiculous. It's a waste of time. It's just something getting away with what your plans are this afternoon. But it's such a blessing. It's a blessing. He says that in verse 16. Blessed are your eyes for they see. Blessed are your ears for they hear. He's speaking to those in the boat with him, the believers, the disciples. And he says, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people have longed to see what you see and did not see. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. What he's saying is the Old Testament prophets themselves, the one who we read about in the Old Testament scriptures, the ones who pro prophesize about the coming of the Messiah, who would be a suffering servant, who, who would be the one who ushered in the kingdom of God. Oh, would they have loved to have been in the boat with Jesus. Asking him, now wait, what now? Wait, first of all, your name's Jesus? That's awesome. And you came on the day they sacrificed the Lamb of God. That's brilliant. You take away the sins of the world. Tell me more about it. Tell me your purposes. What, you're, you're gonna die on a cross and you're gonna raise from the grave and you're gonna go to heaven and you're gonna come back and you're gonna judge your enemies and you're gonna establish your kingdom on a new heaven and a new earth. Oh my word, this is awesome. And I get to participate in that. I get to share that message. Oh, what a blessing it is. And they were so blessed to sit in the boat with Jesus, but oh, how blessed we are. We've got more than them. We've got the Old Testament scriptures that prophesied it. We've got the gospels that announce his arrival. We have the epistles that talk about life in light of his arrival. And we have the Revelation and Daniel that tell us how it's going to end. We have so much more. How blessed are you who have the word of God. And the spirit of God will give you more and more if you have the appetite. So what Jesus has been saying, finally, is that in the crowds, there's hearts that are stubborn and hard. 
There are hearts that are shallow. And there are hearts that are distracted. Hmm. That'd make a good parable, wouldn't it? What if I describe that as soils? So let's look at the explanation of the parable in 18 through 23. He says, hear then, if you have ears to hear, hear then the parable of the sower. And he explains, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The hard path, the seed fell. It's the word of God on a heart that is hard and dull and has no room for Jesus. And Satan says, I'll take that. That'll do you no good. Go on, have lunch. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, verse 20, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. You've seen those people, haven't you? It breaks your heart. You've prayed for them. You've shared with them. And they receive it. And they look like they're believers. And they're excited. And they're proclaiming Jesus. But as soon as it costs them something, they say, oh, forget this. They were not ever disciples of Jesus. And it crushes us. Because we were so excited with them. And we're like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And they walk away. There was no root. There was no real conversion. There was no real faith in Christ. And so they were never really in Christ. And it was revealed through suffering and persecution. In verse 22, as for the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I think this is still an unbeliever who appears as a believer because the way I've, the interpretive key is understanding when you work through here. There's only one who has understanding, as that is those in the good soil. But the first one hears with no understanding. The second one hears no mention of understanding. The third one hears no understanding. And so what we see is this person is probably the religious person who, who gives lip service to Jesus, who goes to church, who maybe even reads their Bible some. But the point is they look religious. But they never truly embrace Christ. They're still living for the world, living for the riches of the world, living for the things of the world. Their allegiances never shift to Jesus. And so they never produce fruit for the kingdom. They don't live for Jesus. They don't teach others about Jesus. They don't make sacrifices for Jesus. They're just all about this world and the things of the world. And the religion only promotes that pursuit. If I'm going to be a successful businessman, I've got to go to church because in Shreveport, everybody has a church. Jesus says, no fruit ever comes from them. They have no understanding. They are not in Christ. Which of these soils can you relate with? Are you the hard soil that's just, I got no room for Jesus and I'm just here because I've got to be? 
Are you that person who was excited once, and then as soon as it cost you something, you say, oh, wait, wait, no, no, that's getting a little radical. Are you the person who's just doing church because it really helps you pursue your real God, which is the things of this world? Jesus is challenging us to ask, are you in the crowd or are you in the boat? It's tough questions. Sometimes I think I'm that last guy. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, I mean, I like a lot of things in the world. I love my boat. Are you in the crowd or are you in the boat with Jesus? Finally, verse 23, the good soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. That's the understanding of faith. That's the heart grasping the revelation of God. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case, a hundredfold, in another, 60, and another, 30. So the good soil is the heart of faith, the heart that embraces Jesus, the f- heart that finds Jesus lovely, that finds Jesus as the only hope of salvation, the king of the kingdom, the promised Messiah. We read the Old Testament. We're looking, where is the Messiah? And Jesus came and said, I'm the Messiah. And he proves it by being buried and raising from the grave. And I find, I believe that crazy message. I believe it, that he gives life after death, that he took his sin, my sins upon himself on the cross and that he's at the right hand of the Father interceding on my behalf and all the promises are yes in Christ and all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places are mine in Christ. I believe it. God has given me faith to believe these truths. I stand today believing only in Jesus. Where are you? What is your current posture, as J.D. Greer says? Are you currently, today, right now, trusting in the promises of God concerning Jesus? We still have to ask a question. They're all fruitful disciples, but they have different levels of fruit. This is probably about 6 o'clock yesterday. I'm like, can I just stop? Do we deal with that or not? Is the different fruits matter? Is, I mean, they're all fruitful. Why is there different levels of fruitfulness among those who are fruitful and described as having understanding so they're believers? I think there's two reasons. The first is that because we all struggle like we describe those soils. We all have a tendency to allow our hearts, even as believers, to be captivated by the things of this world. We all still are battling against the gods that we want and the God that is one true God. And that results to the extent that we do that in fruitlessness. Or maybe the cost of obeying Jesus has just stopped you on your tracks of, I mean, I've trust Jesus, I'm with Jesus, but... He's asking me to make a big decision, and I'm not sure I'm willing. And there's fruitlessness because I'm not trusting him in that area. 
So I think that's clear in scriptures. Titus 3.14 says, and let our people learn to devote themselves. There's that dedication, that work, that diligence, devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So unfruitfulness can happen in a believer because they're not devoting themselves to fruitfulness. We see that also in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. He says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with. Make every effort. You hear the effort believers must make. To supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. For if these qualities are yours increasing measure, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we can be unfruitful if we aren't diligent to pursue with every ounce of our being more understanding, more revelation from the word of God and more obedience and more faithfulness. And it's this feeding frenzy that the rich get richer. But there's a second answer to this question. And that's the sovereignty of God. I ain't no Billy Graham. God rest his soul. But God, in his good pleasure, decided Billy Graham, a brush salesman, is going to be his ambassador to the world. God has a different plan for each one of our lives, and we're not to go around comparing. Hey, I'm no good. I'm not him. The scriptures talks about this. It says that God allocates faith to each one according to his good pleasure. In Romans 12, 3, he says that, He gives to each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually we're members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So there's a sovereign plan of God. It is his good pleasure to use you in this way and and you in that way and me in this way. And we all are not to say, well, I'm no good. No, Paul makes it very clear. We're all serving the Lord. And as long as we are using what he has given us, diligently pursuing to honor his name with all that he's given us, then he says, leave the rest up to me. If I decide to make you the next Billy Graham, then so be it. But if not, so be it. My plan is sufficient for you. So now, we finally understand the parable. What do we do about this? Two concluding points. Number one, the context of the sermon has been week after week, you have been sent by the Son of God. God saved you to send you, not to sour you. He saved you to send you. As you go, you're going to see all kinds of things. You're going to be persecuted. Now what he's saying is you're going to throw your seed into all kinds of soil. Do you sit around and look at the soil? you sit around paralysis by analysis? Are you afraid of throwing the seed? No, he says, cast the seed. Just cast the seed. You're the sower. Cast the seed. I got the seed. It's not bad. The issue's not you, the issue's not the the seed, it's not about you. Get over yourself, just cast the seed. 
And the different reactions you see is more about their heart. It's not really about us. So just cast a seed. And the second point is this. Pray, 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 pray. Because the connection to God with his divine mysteries and sovereignty and his plans that I can't explain, he's given us one great tool, and that is pray. Oh, God, give them ears to hear. Oh, God, prepare my children's heart. Oh, God, rush upon them. God, make them wise in their decisions. Oh, God, I'm going to share with this person at work. Would you please go before me, prepare their heart? Would you work in the circumstances when I cast the seed? Lord, would you bring someone to water the seed? Would you bring forth a mighty harvest? Lord, save them. Save them, Lord. Don't give up on them. That's how the scriptures lead us to pray. Pray for others as you proclaim the word of God. Pray for your children as you teach them the word of God. Oh, Lord God, make them hear the word of truth. Make them love you, Lord God. Draw them to yourself, Lord God. Would you show your glory to my children? Would you rush upon them and not let them be satisfied with anything less than you? Pray that. And pray for yourself as you proclaim and teach the word of God. Oh, Lord God, keep my heart cultivated and soft. Lord, keep me from sin. Oh, Lord, don't let me fall in love with the things of this world. May I treasure you supremely that I might not be rendered fruitless. Pray for your own self as you sow the seed generously. Sling the seed everywhere. Father God, would you help us? Help us be generous sowers of your seed, knowing that it will only produce fruit where it is received by hearts of faith. May we not let that discourage us, but instead may it drive us to our needs in prayer that we may pray for the hearts that we're casting the seed to and that we may pray for our own faithfulness that we not be rendered fruitless. I have a feeling there's people here today that need to trust Christ. During this song, just... Just call out to him in your spirit and say, Jesus, I want to get in the boat with you. I believe that you are the son of God who came to save me from my sin. At the end of the service, we're always available to hear from you. We love the privilege of hearing about what business God's doing in your heart. Many of us are in the boat with Jesus, but our fruit could be better because we've been distracted. Our hearts are either distracted with the things of this world or we've counted the cost and we're not quite willing let today be a day of fruitful beginnings for you come talk to us after the service let us know what God's doing in your heart it's in Christ's name we pray amen